Well, good morning, everybody. And again, I want to just thank our music team for leading us in worship, musical worship. But we're not done with our worship this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bible and go to the passage that Brother Jeff read. It's the same passage that Brother Paul read last week. When it turns out, most of my sermon was an introduction or a setup. Today, I plan to walk us through those first 16 verses of John chapter 11. Again, I want to say welcome back. Welcome back to all of you who joined me last week. And let me say again, a special welcome if you're here for the very first time. I know Dave already did this, but I want to welcome anybody in the neighborhood of Kilbride that might be tuning in as well. A special welcome to you and thank you for stopping by. So whether you're a first-time visitor, whether this is the first time you've been back in a while, or whether you are my church family, those that have been tuning in week after week after week, friends, family, welcome. Now this is going to seem odd, but I want to do something here. My name is Stephen Bray. I'm the lead elder of Calvary Baptist Church. Calvary Baptist Church is my church family. Calvary Baptist Church is the church that I love to be with, to do life with, and to serve God and our city with. Indeed, let me go a step further. Even though I know it's raining outside and it's classic in Newfoundland terms, Capelin weather, I believe that St. John's is one of, if not the most beautiful cities of the world. Newfoundland and Labrador is an extraordinary province. And Canada, God keep our land glorious and free. Canada is a wonderful country. Believe it or not, I think we're blessed. I know I'm blessed. Think about all the things that we have. We've got clean water. Here in St. John's, I believe we've got a safe place to raise our families. And I don't know about all of you, but I know I can speak for myself that I have health and strength. I've got a beautiful and loving wife. God has blessed us with three children. We're overwhelmed with having two grandchildren. And Debbie and I have both sets of our parents, both that are alive, both doing well, and they love Jesus, and they love us. And then I've got friends. I've got friends all around the world, friends that I can turn to, friends that pray for me, and friends that I can have fun with and do life with. And then I get to work with a great team here at Calvary Baptist Church in Mile One Mission. We've got an incredible church, and our church, Calvary Baptist, is growing. We're a young church, and our church has a vision. We started and launched this ministry called Mile One Mission, and that's growing. We've got our first church plant in the works over in Kilbride, and we've got our eye and our prayers on three more locations. In case you're wondering, we're hoping that Calvary Baptist Church will build a building soon. We own property on the roundabout in Paradise. And then we're supported by wonderful churches and organizations and people. Groups like 20 Schemes and Acts 2-9, the Sin Network, and then there's the Shantyman Mission, if you can remember that, that did mission here in Newfoundland and Labrador, probably over the last 100 years. They work alongside of us. And then, like Brother Jeff prayed for, there's churches like Living Water Baptist Church down in Myrtle Beach, churches like Fellowship Baptist Church in Coburg, Ontario, 
Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia, Ontario. Black Diamond Bible Chapel. And it goes on and on. It, they support us. Friends, let me just say this. In the midst of everything, I think it's great to be alive. It's great to serve God. For me personally, it's great to be a pastor. As Calvin and Hobbes in their comics said, I want to grab life every day and throttle it for Jesus. And then we're a talented church. This wee little church on this island here in the middle of the Atlantic, we produce music and blogs and podcasts and videos and Facebook pages and websites. We make God known and our wonderful city known around the world. Indeed, life is good. God is good. Calvary is good. Mile One Mission is good. All praise to him who reigns above with majesty supreme. Amen? (laughs) Now, you're probably thinking... What did Steve take before he got on camera? All right. Let me try this. Did I forget to mention that today we'll pass 7 million people who have the COVID virus? That 400,000 men and women have died? Did I mention that since January 1st, 18 million Unborn babies have been aborted. That this past week, countless protests and riots, looting, and right now, 17 deaths have happened across the United States, and that's spilling over into Canada, even here in Newfoundland and around the world. What if I told you that Newfoundland and Labrador is on the brink of what could be economic collapse? That the governments of the world seem to be more corrupt than ever before. Statistics tell us that sex trafficking trafficking is rampant. That suicide, drug use, violence against women, alcoholism are all on a massive spike. That crime is expected to spike in the second half of this year. What if I said that it doesn't seem like we can trust the media to tell us the truth and that culture is increasingly less tolerant of church, Christianity, or even the family, let alone truth? What if I told you that churches are shrinking, splitting, failing, and closing? Too many pastors are quitting or sinning out of ministry or they're dictators and power hungry. What if I told you that the doctrines of faith are crumbling, even Christians are turning on each other as the whole world seems to turn on itself? The last three months have told us that we are more paranoid, mistrusting, and unfriendly. Masks now hide our faces and science is God. But he's a God who's always changing and failing. We now live in a world in our North American culture where movie stars now dictate our morality. And politicians, well, are well for the most part, booed, laughed at, and scorned. Clergy is almost a bad word. Church is for the weak and the intellectually small. Survival of the fittest is more alive now than ever. And I sometimes want to just stay in bed, curl up in the fetal position, and suck my thumb. I want to hide from the world and pretend it'll all just go away. I fear for my kids and especially for my grandkids. And I wonder if my friends will turn on me. There's times I wish 2020 was over and we're only halfway through. 
Now the other song I could sing is, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Did you notice the massive extremes in the two ways I described my life? This morning, I want us to look at perspective. Perspective. It makes a difference. Perspective was everywhere in those verses that Jeff read. This morning, as we look at conversations with Christ in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, I want you to realize this. What do you do when God takes something in your life like an illness and uses it to redefine death and give you and I a different perspective? You see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I told you all this last week. This here is the great seventh sign of John. His purpose statement is that he chose these signs so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And we're now going to learn that Jesus, as the resurrection and the life, He's the one who has defeated death and he's going to use the sufferings of this sin-cursed world for his purposes, for his glory. And in our passage, God is going to demonstrate his love in that while the world is dying, Christ is giving us life. And so right out of the gates, let's jump into our passage this morning. I want us to look at it. Number one, if you're taking notes at home, I want to give us a new, fresh perspective. You see, just like I started, you can either try to talk yourself into happiness, like I tried to do in the first part, or you can talk yourself into depression, like I did in the second part. So what, number one this morning, as we jump into our passage, write this down. What do you do when Jesus demonstrates God's sovereign love? Not your definition of love. Not my definition of love. Goodness gracious, please. Not Hollywood's definition of love or even the world's definition of love. What do we do when Jesus demonstrates God's sovereign love? John chapter 11 records that climactic sign. John is choosing this to, in order to make his point. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're going to see over the next two weeks, Mary and Martha will both talk of this. This is also the final Passover that Jesus is going to celebrate before he goes to the cross. In fact, he's only days away from hanging on a cross. And John the Apostle is building up to this point from John chapter 1, following and all of the chapters coming in John chapter 12 to 17, is the final rejection, the final discussion of Jesus with the disciples. And then we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and hear Jesus pray. And don't miss out again, the sixth sign, which was the man born blind, who is given his sight, and Lazarus, who will be dead for four days. These are completely unique miracles to John's gospel. No one in biblical history had ever had their sight restored from birth. And we're going to learn next week in Father's Day weekend, no one was raised from the dead having been dead for four days. But I want you to realize in our passage, John 11, 1 to 16, John has two main points that he wants us to focus on and never lose sight of. Number one, God has a perspective on love. 
God has a set of priorities, a perspective of priorities. God has a perspective on plans that is far over, far better, far deeper, and far more wonderful than you and I could ever imagine. Plus, he wants you and I to focus on and never lose sight of. Every one of us, every trial, every setback, every experience, everything that you and I go, to, go through and have experienced, most of all, and including death, are never unfelt by our Savior, Jesus. Jesus knows how you feel. So what seems like in our passage, Jesus delayed response. And later, that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Today, we're going to focus on why that seeming delay of Jesus in the next few weeks leading to Father's Day. We'll consider why John wants us to know that a man has been dead for four days. The Lord Jesus, who had power over all diseases, who could no doubt have prevented this illness, if he thought it fit, if he thought it met with the plan. But you see, Jesus' love, his priorities, his plan, his perspective, he allowed Lazarus to be sick. He allowed him to be in pain and weary and to languish and suffer like any other man, and eventually he would die. Now look at verses 1 to 6 with me this morning. Let's take a look at this, how John starts this out for us. And what do you see? There was a certain man who was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. That's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now John wants us to know that Mary was the one who anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now realize that hasn't happened yet in John's gospel. That's going to take place in chapter 12. That was such a well-known, life-altering experience. John preemptively tells us and tells his audience, this is the Mary I'm talking about. Now notice, they saw the sisters in verse 3 sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when he heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God. Now watch this. So that God, the Son of God, may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Hmm. What do you see? Did you notice how John talks about Jesus' relationship with Lazarus and Martha and Mary? He loved them. They were his friends. They knew they could call out to him. He had a very personal relationship with them. He had spent time in their home. What love, what friendship for these three, for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus, wasn't a hope. It was true. It was real. They lived it. Now, for my Calvary Baptist family and some of my friends and family that are watching me right now, you guys know how much I believe in, desire, preach and teach how Christians should be friends. And this really burdens me. I'm an only child, so I don't have siblings. So friendships have meant an awful lot to me. But then as God saved me and called me into ministry the one thing I've noticed in my culture, in the world, and in the church is our lack of understanding of friendship. 
The world longs for friendship, real ones, friends you can trust, friends you can lean on, friends you can look to. And the issue is that we are so confused about friendship. So many of you have heard me say these two things, and I know my mom and dad are probably watching, and my dad will smile because these are things I learned from my dad, and my dad learned them from his dad. You see, there's a huge difference between acquaintances and friends. And my dad used to tell me growing up, Stephen, you'll be blessed of God if you have one or two best friends. Then the other statement I've kind of developed over the years is that real friends tell you what, to, what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But real friends don't leave you or abandon you when you guys disagree or you don't follow each other's advice or you don't like all the same things. Why do you think the Bible says that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Friends, listen, even in ancient Rome, that statesman Cicero said this, with the exception of wisdom, I am inclined to think nothing better than friendship has been given to man by the immortal gods. That's ancient Roman wisdom speaking now. Did you realize that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak of friendship 26 times? times and a few chapters from now Jesus will say this in John chapter 15 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you watch now greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends why you are my friends if I do if you do what I command you no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you and so John wants us to see Jesus is a friend of this family but now watch look at our passage John wants us to become acquainted with the characters of the passage. We find out that Lazarus is ill. We find out that Mary is well known. That the sisters assume Jesus cares. That they can go to him. And then we see Jesus' perspective. And the real issue going on behind what's seen to the human beings. You see, I started my sermon out to rock your world. To say, what's Steve going on about? He's full of himself today. Or... Look at how sad Steve is because perspective is everything. So let me ask you, friends, family, how's your perspective today? What's your perspective of yourself, your marriage, your job, your your finances, your health, your children, your friendships and relationships, your church, government, all of the turmoil we see? What's your perspective on racism and law enforcement? of authority, of how we should express ourselves. Who do we trust? How do you think we're going to look at COVID-19 a year from now, five years from now? I said this last week, I say it again. What's your perspective on Snowmageddon? I don't know about you, but I feel like Snowmageddon was five years ago, and it's only five months ago. You see, love How do you think Mary and Martha define it versus how God defines it? Our passage tells us in those first six verses that Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. 
we get a very interesting lesson on love. If you look at those two verses, Mary and Martha say that Jesus is a great loving friend to Lazarus and to them. But then look at the next couple of verses down because it says here, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, her sister and Lazarus in verse 5. Believe it or not, these are two different uses of the word love. Mary and Martha say that Jesus loves them in a very friendship kind of way. But in in verse 5, Jesus uses the word agape. He's saying to to us and the sisters, I love you far better than my dear ones. I love you in a God Almighty way. Jesus is saying, I love you, Lazarus people, in an unconditional, all-powerful, all-knowing kind of way. I love you so much that I know every possible outcome and and for your life. I love you in that I created you. I knew you before I ever said, let there be light. I love you because I knew you in your mother's womb. I've numbered your days. I know the hairs of your head. I know your thoughts and feelings and emotions. I love you even though you are sinners. I love you even though you have and will doubt me. I love you to work in your life in ways you'll not understand. And I'll keep things from you. And I'll give things to you that you'll not expect. I love you so that I'll die die for you. I'll come for you and I'll take you to me for eternity. Is that your perspective on love? Now watch, look at verse six again. Look at what he says in verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's your perspective on that verse? Now, but before I fill that in, I want to take a little time to point out just a little commercial here, make a great point, I think, about prayer and how to gain the right perspective. You see, Lazarus, who was only known because of this chapter and the miracle, and maybe because of the gospel of Luke, because there we read about another Lazarus. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, tell us about the only other Lazarus in the New Testament. And of great interest to me is that in both cases, we are dealing with silent men. The poor man Lazarus who dies and goes to heaven in Luke and Lazarus, the youngest of the family, this young brother and friend of Jesus, both are talked about, both say nothing, and yet both are great witnesses. And in Luke... The rich man wants to send this silent Lazarus back from the grave so he can be a testimony to his family. And in our passage, this Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And in the very next chapter, they're all at a banquet to marvel and be witnesses to the fact that this Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And yet, no words recorded of Lazarus. Now, I know I, don't, I have to spoil the ending, but most of you already know, right? Lazarus is going to live. He will be raised from the dead. I'm sorry to spoil it for you, but that's what I'm going to preach the next two weeks. And it has a huge impact on the world around him. As I mentioned, scholars tell us he was probably the youngest of the family, and he appears to be the quietest of the family. Mary and Martha seem to outshine him. But watch now, in chapter 12, now Lazarus is the center of attention. He's with Jesus at a celebration banquet. So much so that the Jewish religious establishment want him dead again. Well, now what does that tell us? Tells me that even quiet 
silent people who have met Jesus can become great witnesses. James Montgomery Boyce says, you should be especially careful that your life demonstrates the reality of that spiritual resurrection that Jesus has performed in you so that others might turn to him and believe in him because of what they see. And then there's Martha. She's the most known for her problem with her attitude. Remember in back in Luke chapter 10 where she gets a bit spidey because she's busy serving And actually, Luke chooses to use that word distracted. In fact, in the passage, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Her perspective is... My sister is taking you in. I'm the one that invited you here. I'm the one that's serving, and she's getting all of you and all the glory. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You see, before the Brady Bunch ever came, Jesus was doing the Martha, Martha, Martha thing. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So here we have it. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a busy woman, and she loses sight of why and who she's serving. Her perspective, her attitude is on how to impress Jesus, and it gets blurred. You see that her, this encounter changes Martha's attitude. Because look at our passage again. Both sisters send this message to Jesus. Martha is going to be first to meet Jesus. And in chapter 12, Martha is once again serving Jesus, but this time you're going to notice She doesn't demand anything of Mary. They both express their love as they both respond to Jesus' love. And you'll really see why over the next three weeks. You see, Martha's attitude gains a new perspective. And then there's Mary. And every time we meet this woman, she's at the feet of Jesus. But watch. The first time in Luke... She's listening to Jesus' teaching. The second time that we're going to see it next week, she is worshiping at Jesus' feet. She's a great example of what it means not to just learn stuff about Jesus, but to actually learn from Jesus and how it changes you and your understanding of Jesus' way. For Mary gets all this most of all. But I want you to look at one final thing as before we move on. Look at how the sisters send word to Jesus. Lord, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Now, I've spent a great bit of time last week and even today talking about death. But Christians respond to death very differently from those who don't believe in Jesus. You see, death for those who don't trust in Jesus is final. It's fatal. Dare I say it's hopeless and empty. But for the Christian, death is not final. It's not fatal. I mean, listen to Paul, right? In Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it fuels your prayer life. Because watch it. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus and they simply make their requests known. Nothing fancy. 
They don't have to convince Jesus to listen. They don't have to impress him. They simply come. Lord, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. My friends, don't miss this. How comforting do you think this is to the sisters and to a sick Lazarus that they could simply send him word? And I love this. Lazarus, whom you love. Now, Christian friends, don't miss this, all right? They don't pray based on their devotion. Notice what it says. It doesn't say, Jesus, you know how much Lazarus loves you. You know how much we love you. You know how much we go to church and how we used to have you in our house. You know all of our history. They simply go, Lazarus, whom you love. They prayed based on Jesus' love for them. How much would that transform your prayer life and mine? Do you know how many Christians, how many friends, how many times I've struggled going to God in prayer, trying to convince myself and trying to convince Jesus to love me when the Bible says Jesus already loves me? In 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Even our love for God stems from his love for us. This is what we have to hope for. Matthew Henry says, our love to him is not worth speaking of. But his love for us can never be spoken of enough. So knowing this, even in this passage, provides you with encouragement to pray. You'll feel distant from God. Because sometimes we've got cold hearts, mixed performance. But I'm so thankful our prayers are offered not in our own name, but in Jesus' name. That is, on the basis of his perfect life-saving work. And again, look at how God changes their perspective and ours. He redefines love because it's God's sovereign love versus our definition of love. Jesus loved them, and verse 6 says, so he waited. What? What? They loved him They came to him based on his love, and he says, I love them, and so he waited. This was their worst trial, according to them. Lazarus is going to die, and Jesus knew it, and he still waited. Now listen to this. Kent Hughes writes, When a child dies in his mother's arms as she cried to God for help, and the ambulance lies stalled two blocks away, we wonder if God cares. When a Christian is falsely accused and pleads with God to bring the evidence to clear him, and it is only after his reputation is ruined that the evidence comes, we wonder, does God care? When we plan some great event for God and the whole thing falls through, we wonder if God cares. But if Jesus was going to transform Lazarus and Martha and Mary and his disciples He is going to lovingly give them what they needed. You see, Richard Phillips is right. Jesus knows that there are more important things that we should be delivered from than sickness. More things more important that we need than being provided with a good job. More things that we need than being helped out of any number of trials. Our faith, for instance, is more important. And Jesus puts it ahead of our perceived needs. 
Our witness is more important. Our attitude is more important. And ultimately, Jesus thinks it's most important that we do what Mary did after his power was fully revealed. He wants us to lay our most costly gifts at his feet and offer that gift and ourselves as worship to him. Now, let's keep going. Let's look at verses 7 to 10. And my second point is Jesus demonstrates God's sovereign priorities. Look at what happens next. Jesus says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, um, uh, Rabbi, uh, just, just to clarify, the Jews that were just now seeking to kill you or stone you, and you want to go there again? Notice that question mark? I think there's a little bit of like wonder, like, are you, are you sure you know what you're talking about? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Now, I want you to realize what's happening here. Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead. We're going to see that. He knows that the sisters are hurting and mourning. Jesus knows that his own death is simply days away. He also knows that he will do what he will do once he gets there. Do you see it? You see, Jesus' perspective is totally in line with God's will and his way. He is the God-man, perfect in every way, trusting, following, submitting, and perfecting his mission and calling to God and to give God glory and to bring salvation to humanity. His priorities are not only correct, they're perfectly correct. But watch how the disciples respond. Look at verse 8. It gives us their perspective. Um, Excuse me, Rabbi, um, you seem to have a short-term memory loss. Why are we here in this side of the Jordan in the first place? You see, if you go back to the end of chapter 10, you'll notice in verse 31, they're trying to stone Jesus. In verse 39, they try to take him prisoner. And that's not what we'd call a glorious time. Now watch this. They get out of there. They go across the Jordan. And at the end of chapter 10, it says that many came to him and many believed in him. It wasn't just that they were avoiding persecution and opposition. Many were believing in him. It wasn't just avoiding trouble. They were enjoying great success. Does this not sound familiar to North American Christianity in the last hundred years? In Canada, the United States, we have seen great revivals. Our country of Canada, our province was founded on Christian principles. Scripture verses are inscribed everywhere on the walls of our government buildings, both here in Newfoundland up and, and up in Ottawa. We've avoided largely trouble and persecution, and we've had great success. And perhaps, just maybe... Our perspective, our priorities have gotten off track just a little bit. Look at what Jesus says in verse 9 and 10. He talks about these 12 hours of the day and how we walk in the light and not in the darkness. Again, Richard Phillips says, if we understand this time of death, we will be equipped to understand the time of life. Pascal understood this, saying that he had learned to define life backward so he could live it forward. What he meant was that he first defined death and then arranged his life accordingly. 
But notice what Jesus is saying here. In this 12 hours thing, he's basically saying two things. Number one, we only have a certain amount of days to live. Our days are numbered. And number two, we only have the time given to us by God to live our lives for him. Jesus, again, is setting our priorities straight. Jesus always lived by God's priorities. He's got a certain amount of days. He has a mission to complete. He's only days away from the cross. He's got to give glory to God. And now he was the one. Now, listen, he rested, he prayed, he communed with God, but he also gave himself totally to the perspective and priority of God's will. The reason he uses the idea that the night part is harder for us to stand, understand in our culture because we've got street lights and flashlights and headlights and all this. But I'll still say this. I've seen so many of you during this lockdown going for hikes all around St. John's and the Avalon Peninsula. And I think very, very few of you would say, let's go at midnight and do that hike. And though this principle remains true when it comes to living in light of God's will. You see, my friends, if you're going to seek your way, then you're going to stumble. If you're not going to follow the revealed word, then you're going to have troubles with your priorities. That's why Psalm 119, 105 wisely says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The same can be said when it comes to God's calling on our lives. You see, sometimes we are so wrapped up in trying to avoid opposition and avoid trouble, and sometimes we're so in love with the comfort and ease of being popular and accepted and being liked that we don't see that God is calling us to do things. We see an opportunity for the gospel and how we can fill it, yet many of us don't. Opportunities to share our faith, and we don't, because we've got our own plans and our own dreams and our own path. But when you follow that, I promise you every single time, you're going to trip up and fall over your own dreams. And then finally, look at God demonstrating, Jesus demonstrating God's sovereign plan. In verses 11 to 16, Jesus finally looks at his disciples and he says, Lazarus is sleeping. Now, time is not going to allow me to unpack that. I'm going to unpack it over the next couple of weeks. But sleep and death, I just want to say this. In the Bible, sleep and death always attributed to those who trust God in the Bible. And it means that death wasn't to be feared. You see, sleep is almost always seen as a good thing. It refreshes the body, can help healing, gives us strength, and means we'll be awakened in good spirits. And that, by the way, is what death is to the Christian. George Mueller preaching at his own wife's funeral. Can you imagine this? He preached his wife's funeral in 1870, said this, The Lord was good to give her to me. The Lord was good to leave her with me so long. And the Lord was good to take her home from me. (laughs) Contrast that with the world. In ancient times, They have massive monuments to those who have died. And yet the inscriptions are filled with mourning and anger against death. But then you go to Rome and go to those humble catacombs. The burial place of those who died for Christ. And yet they are filled with words of praise and hope and peace and blessing. And yet watch what Jesus does in verse 4. He actually says, 14, sorry. He says, Lazarus is dead. And he goes, I'm glad. Now talk about perspective. Why is he glad? Because he's going to tell his disciples, death doesn't win. God gets the glory in order that you might believe. And that's John's purpose statement. That's his perspective. Now watch how Thomas responds. At the end of it in verse 16. Well, 
let's go and die with him. Thomas the doubter says, let's go and die. Now watch this. Take this home with you today. You see, Thomas actually has courageous faith, but not triumphant faith. Let me say that again. Thomas has courageous faith, but not triumphant faith. Do you remember in my daily devotions, we were reading in Mark chapter 8, and we see that the disciples had a perspective that was still in terms of politics and overthrow. They can't see yet the cross, sin paid for once and for all, Satan defeated, death overcome, and that's what's going to come in the coming weeks. And so my friends, family, visitors, Jesus loves us, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But he loves us according to his love, his priorities, his plan. He corrects our view of ourselves. He gives us the right perspective on our circumstances and our expectations. But that's also your source of comfort and hope and power. Death is not the enemy of the Christian. In fact, nothing that we face or encounter or have to endure or walk through can rob us of God's love or God's priorities or God's plan. Satan can't stop it. The world can't stop it. The coronavirus can't stop it. Racism can't can't stop it. Sin can't stop it. Jesus paid it all. That's why 1 Corinthians mocks death. That's why John tells us in Revelation 21 that we will, he will wipe away all pain and tears and sorrow and death because they're former things. So my friends, are you willing for God to use your life for his glory and the salvation of others? Or do you hold to lesser agendas? Lazarus is going to become the great witness when Jesus takes his greatest trial and demonstrates his power and love. Martha will have her service transformed. Mary will have herself transformed. The disciples are given a front row seat of God's perspective. The question for you and I today is this. Are you and I truly trusting in Jesus' love and his priorities and his plan for your life and mine today, no matter what you're facing. I love how Mary and Martha turn to Jesus with their issues. I love how the disciples do the same. And that's what separates you from other professing Christians and especially the world. Do you run to Jesus or from him? Are you bringing him your questions, your burdens, your fears, your desires, your sin, your failures, your hurts? Ray Ortland Jr. says, this impossible mess we have made, this ongoing crime spree we call human history, this soap opera of self-excusing absurdities, this is the world God loves, to which he gave his only son. He isn't shocked or defeated, but only digging in more deeply with more love. Perspective. Do you look to Jesus and trust him with his perspective? Or are you running behind him or ahead of him or worse yet or most tragic of all against him? And my friends and family, the Bible is filled with the answers to our perspective. We can pray 
It's where we cast our anxieties and our cares. We can read God's word and for that way, that is where we discover mercy and grace and we find that Jesus is always working. That's the very definition of Romans 8, 28. It's why Revelation 6 promises the martyrs to rest a little while until God makes everything new. That's why in Romans 4 and 5, if you want to know the hope of the Christian as we rise up and we stand against injustice and racism, look no further to Revelation 4 and 5, where men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered together around the throne room of God, praising Him. And I long for this. And so look around at the sickness and the hurt, the hate and the conflict, and how humanity is longing and looking for peace and for calm and for justice and for love. And if they would but turn their eyes upon Jesus. Christian Our calling is to be a witness of the greatness of Christ, to be a servant of Christ, to give ourselves to Christ. And don't ever forget, maybe some of you have courageous faith like Thomas. Let's go and die with Jesus. And you're almost missing the boat, thinking that your faith is political or a nasty, noisy spectacle when Jesus calls us to live us a triumphant faith. And we're going to see over the next two weeks, Jesus will show us emotion and prayer, and triumph, but it will be through humble weakness, because our perspective is eternal, not temporal. And so today, my weary, doubting, skeptic, and sinner, come to Jesus. He loves you. He'll give you rest. Patiently deal with your questions. Quietly and gently change your heart and mind and perspective. He'll forgive your sin, heal you, and transform you. Oh, but will you turn to him? And Christian, how is your perspective today? Are you praying and reading God's word for the relationship and trust of Christ? Or are you struggling, afraid, trying to cling to the world while trying to hang on to Jesus? And that, my friends, is a painful place to be. Because Jesus is going to feel a million miles away. And the world won't settle for anything less than total allegiance. Jesus lived for us so we can live to be like him. This miracle changed the lives of so many. Will you and I now let this miracle teach and transform us too? Let's pray. Oh my God and my Savior, I pray that my friends and my family and those I love will hear a much better sermon than I could possibly preach. Lord, I know this was a lot of material, Lord, there's so much depth to this passage. But Lord, give my friends and my family, our visitors, perspective. A Christ-like perspective. Help my friends and family to know how much Jesus loves them. Lord, help us to live for you patiently, longingly, having our lives and our attitude changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. And Lord, may you get all the honor and the glory because you alone are worthy. And as we sing this now, oh God, change my perspective. Change our perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.